You're listening to the NFX Podcast. The NFX Podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating and review and by sharing with your friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos at nfx.com. And now, on to the show. Hey guys, what's up? Thanks for coming, and we're going to have a really fun time today. So before we get into anything, who's here? Who are you guys? Reveal yourselves and name as much as you want to share, and then I'll be asking a lot of questions over the course of this podcast to reveal more, but kick it off. Kai, hit it off. Thanks for having me. I'm Kai Sheffield. I'm the head of crypto at Visa. Excited to be here. Micah Johnson, uh, artist, uh, creator of Aku, former uh, professional baseball player, and uh, just ready to rock. He's always ready to rock. I'm ready to rock. So of course, Kai and Micah massively undersold themselves, which was expected, but we'll get into more of who they are and why they're here over the course of the next hour or so. Okay, so first, let's talk about like how we all met. So there's a longer story, and Kai and I are going to have a longer conversation about this on another day. But long story short, I was poking around crypto at Facebook. Kai was poking around crypto at Visa, and we were both kind of the rebels from within. So that's where we initially met and how we initially bonded. And fast forward four years, four-ish years, Kai reached out to me a few months ago, a year ago, time's a flat circle. And I was like, you need to meet this guy, Micah. You have to hear his story. Micah, we're putting you on the spot. We just want to quickly hear the short version of the story of how you got into NFTs from being a professional baseball player. And then we're kind of going to use that story to weave in what the hell are NFTs? Why should anyone care? How does this impact the creator economy going forward? culture how is that going to impact so those are teasers what's to come but first yeah baseball to nfts yeah definitely i got an nft that i would honestly say out of like pure desperation i would say i think i got into it like in 2009 into 2019 i started discovering it i discovered art in 2016 and did a couple solo exhibitions at dodger stadium and, and in atlanta as well and then when i retired i realized that they were holding those solo exhibits simply because i was playing major league baseball and uh, nobody was there knocking at my door trying to buy art when i retired and so 2018, 2019, I didn't have anybody, you know, I wasn't selling any art, nothing was happening and I needed to figure out a way to how to make money. Discovered crypto initially, then started going down the rabbit hole of like the three or four articles that were online in late 2019 about NFTs and discovered there was a real thing here and minted my first piece in early 2020. And what I realized was like the network that was like happening with some of the brightest people and like the most like, you know, successful people in the industry were just like, hey, talk to this person and talk to that person. And then like, I'll connect you with this person and I'll connect you here. And I was like, this is incredible. And that whole year and a half after playing Major League Baseball, I didn't have that happening in the real world. And that's what kind of made me fall in love with this community and NFTs. And it really allowed me to learn about what the technology could do and, you know, essentially about what the tech is. And the tech enables things that you couldn't previously do before, which is what I want to ask. But just to give the audience a bit more context on what the NFT is that you launched, like the whole space is so nascent. No one's really written the book yet on how to do this, you know, in air quotes, right. But you're kind of the case study for a lot of experiments that have been run in NFTs. So Kai, I'm going to give you the mic in a second, but just what's the one liner overview of like, what is the NFT that you've launched or the series or? Yeah. So Aku was a digital representation of my physical paintings, my physical paintings. I was painting as a response to my nephew asking if astronauts could be black. 
back and I needed to reach more people uh, with that message after seeing how it resonated with, you know, collectors. And Aku was just a digital representation. And I knew that if I released it as an NFT, that I believed in the community. I was there already for the past year and a half that they would evangelize it or uh, I had a better shot of getting that distributed to a larger audience than just taking it straight to a production studio and losing rights over my IP. And so far it's worked. <laughs> I don't even need to knock on wood anymore. I feel like the cat's out of the bag. I think this is a good time to pause. And Kai, I'm throwing you the mic because one, you have seen a ton of projects and a ton of entrepreneurs and a ton of creators in the space, but something clearly stuck out to you about Micah. Like I remember like feeling your excitement when you messaged me about him. So like what made it different? And Micah, yes, we are putting you on the spot a lot today. So we're going to make you feel uncomfortable, but that's fine. But also Kai, like you're an NFT guru as much as anyone else is. So for the audience who might not be as familiar with crypto, let alone NFTs, just why are they interesting? And you might be able to like weave that together with why Mike is interesting. Yeah, sure. So I'd say I first you know, came across NFTs in what, 2017, 2018 with CryptoKitties. And you know, before Visa, I worked at a company called TrialPay that was you know, in the gaming industry. And you know, we had seen how much demand there really is for in-game items and assets. And so it made sense to me that over time, gaming assets could become these you know, tokens that the gamers and consumers could actually own. So I had a crypto kitty and you know, played around with it and the concept seemed cool. And then was just really waiting for what are people going to build on this? And several years you know, went by and it wasn't you know, following the space closely. We're focusing on a number of other things in, inside of Visa and crypto. And then the Beeple sale happened in December, I believe, of 2020. And I remember the Beeple sale just being this major moment and turning point where it was like, whoa, like a digital artist, you know, sold millions of dollars of this NFT crypto art in a matter of minutes. And I wasn't familiar with people, but I knew he had a reputation as a, a popular artist. And, you know, I looked at some of people's work and, and I respected you know, everything people done, but it wasn't really my taste. And, you know, my mom happens to be an artist and I grew up, you know, around, you know, art. I have no talent. I have zero talent. But I used to go to my mom's studio. I used to go to galleries. And to me, it was always about like, you only buy art if it resonates with you. And it's an emotional purchase. It has to be something that's meaningful. And so then I said, okay, I want to learn about crypto art and, and let me see what's out there. And I was really interested in, I'd been spending time around this intersection of crypto and Black economic empowerment and opportunities for crypto to help close racial wealth disparities and help you know Black creators and entrepreneurs. And so I was looking for, okay, are there Black artists that are leveraging crypto art and NFTs? And I started asking people and they'd send me links to different different artists you know, on these platforms. And I came across one of the pieces from Micah, I think it's called 11K, which was the first piece that I saw. And the moment that I saw it, I was like, I have to own this. Like, it was like that feeling of buying art that's like this, like this is what represents things that I care about deeply. And so I tried to buy it and I reached out to the collector and you know, I was reaching out to all of Micah's collectors you know, early on. And I was like, I have to buy a piece. Like, who is this Micah Johnson artist? And no one would sell one to me. <laughs> I was like, how much? Like, how can I buy it? They wouldn't sell it. And I remember one of the collectors, he literally laughed at me. And he was like, I'm going to pass this Micah Johnson piece down to my kids. 
like there's no number that you could have like I am going to pass this down to my kids. And so that was like the real turning point where I was like, there is something here where, you know, this feeling of art and collecting and the relationship with an artist. Uh, and so I ended up, you know, connecting with Bica just trying to see like, do you have any new pieces coming? Like, what's going on? And ended up discovering other, you know, amazing black artists and creatives you know, across the world and started collecting, you know, what I could and really just figuring out, you know, how can I support and help artists and help raise awareness about the space. And that's where you know, Mike and I started talking a lot more about you know, his project. And I think that it's incredibly powerful to where there's a black crypto art movement happening with creators that are you know bringing amazing work and they're capturing the value of this work and collectors get to decide what work is valuable. And it's really democratizing art as an industry and as an asset class. And I think that's an amazing thing for the world. There's a lot there that I taking notes I want to come back to and the black crypto art movement it should be its own podcast episode but I want to get into that also because thank you for welcoming me into that and I want to talk about the party dad that you invited me to a few weekends ago at some point but it's popping off for sure so but first you mentioned like with your mom that you only want to buy art if it resonates with you and I completely agree with that and that's how I feel also so do you think that the same rules apply to nfts as far as buying art like so what's the same what's different about buying you know, quote, art, like traditional physical art versus buying NFTs? Yeah. For me, I've always approached crypto art NFTs as, you know, a lot of people, they see the headlines around prices and resale people flipping. I've always purchased it like you would purchase art. It's something that resonates with you that you want to associate. And it gives you an opportunity to build like a digital cultural identity where you can say a lot about who you are based upon the art collection that you have. However, with physical art, people have to come into your house. You know, that's the only way they see the art that you have. I had never purchased a piece of physical art as an adult. I wouldn't know where to get it. And then how do you ship it to me? How do I hang it? Like what room? Like it was just a lot of work. And so to me, it just made a lot more sense to collect digital and crypto art, you know, in this environment where I'm on Zoom and virtual interacting with people virtually on the internet, I wanted to start building a crypto art collection that I could then display, you know, online that were pieces that were meaningful to me that could be a part of my you know, online identity. And then knowing that if for whatever reason in the future, I wanted to sell some of that art or it became more valuable, it's much easier to do than having to package it up and put it in a box and ship it. I wouldn't even know how to sell a piece of physical art. And so I think that there's, you know, culture is becoming more of an asset than it ever has before because of this ease of transacting and the ease of holding and the ease of displaying when it's entirely digital rather than, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start, you know, if I wanted to get into physical art collecting. I would say too, like, I think that we're super early in this. And so like everything's lumped together as NFTs, but I think crypto art is its own, you know, subcategory of NFTs similar to, you know, I think these PFP projects we're seeing with like brands, you know, building built uh, from like board apes and some other use cases, ticketing and things like that. So I do think, you know, crypto art is its own subset of that. You know, like if you think of it as like a piece of paper, right? You know, I can make a really beautiful painting on a piece of paper, but you can also write a resume on it or use it, you know, for a vaccine card, right? So yeah, there's definitely subsets of it. Yeah, that's a really important call out. Like an NFT, you know, non-fungible token can be a digital representation of anything from art to a marriage certificate to what have you. So that is an important clarification and distinction that today we are mostly talking about NFTs in the context of art. So Kai, you gave a great perspective on what appeals to you about NFT art versus more traditional art as a buyer. As an artist, Micah, you were a traditional artist and now you're an NFT artist. What 
our similarities, what our differences are any of the rules the same? What rules don't apply? If there's traditional artists listening or thinking of getting into NFTRs, like, what should they be aware of? I think it's, everyone's still trying to figure it out. Everyone's still trying to figure out their lane and how to get in it. You know, I got in it with animating uh, paintings, physical paintings, did a photograph. And now, you know, I, you know, doing Aku as something a little different as more of a, almost like an animation studio, right? I think there's a different lanes for, for, that you can enter and just, you know, a chance to be creative, a chance to collaborate. That's what I think is a big difference here. NFTs, the real unlock of Web3, in particular NFTs, is the, the nature of collaboration. You not only can collaborate with other artists or 3D artists, but you can also collaborate with the audience, right? And have that collective alignment and it's very powerful. And I guess that's the difference between, you know, NFTs and, you know, as a physical artist, my connection is, you know, sometimes very minimal with a collector. You know, I have representation. So, you know, they collect through my representation and they might evangelize it on their social media and that's that. But with what we see here and with my work, like Kai has referenced my work early on, those people have like basically evangelized it, but also are holding it near and dear. And so they're helping each other drive the value of that work. And with Aku, it's at scale. You know, it's you have more people collecting uh, with these additions. And that's the biggest difference to me is if you're a physical artist, try to figure out how you can collaborate and then you'll see you'll be able to learn a lot more than you would have to try to do on your own. I think this notion of these bi-directional relationships between creators and consumers, it's incredibly powerful and, you know, benefits, you know, both where, you know, I have this experience, you know, when I bought one of my first pieces of crypto art. And I purchased it from Latabo Huma, amazing South African artist. And she tweeted out, thank you to my amazing collector. And I felt so cool. I was like, this is incredible. Like most times when you're interacting with a creator, someone that you look up to, someone that you appreciate, they may not even know who you are. You know, if I just went and purchased a print from her e-commerce store, like it's very much just a one uh, directional relationship. And so I started to see how, you know, you could start with, collecting a piece of art and then you know have that turn into a friendship have that turn into a community into a partnership into other opportunities to work together where it's not just about you know the artist and the uh, collector it's now about all of the collectors of that artist getting to know each other in a community with that artist and maybe with other artists and so it's almost like these new social networks and social clubs are emerging in a virtual environment that I think, you know, there are just these really authentic uh, human interactions between people that it's very hard to have in traditional, you know, open social media platforms where there isn't this bond and connection of, you know, starting with some principles or a piece of art or a mission that these communities have. And we've seen this with, you know, the PFP projects, the Bored Apes and CryptoPunks and others. And I think over time, you know, all of the you know, organizations and associations that exist in the physical world that are membership based, that are close knit communities could be recreated in the digital world, you know, with some type of NFT or some type of asset that is really a membership into that club. And so you think about NFTs entirely different way if it's just you're buying or selling something and there's a price versus it's a membership into a community of people that, you know, become lifelong friends. And the price you're willing to pay for something, for a membership into a community with lifelong friends is very different than, you know, a JPEG that you're going to show someone. That is a huge difference. And I've been, you know, I'm in some of these communities and through Stoner Cats, which is a NFT project that I worked on, which is a different type of art, you know, as an animated show, we're seeing the power of 
a community in a way that I don't think we fully understood. So from the creator's perspective, Mike, I'm curious, because like these are all the attributes that appeal to the buyers, right? Like I want a community of lifelong friends. I want to be lifelong friends with Kai. I would buy it if I could. But as a creator, that's a different job, like, right? Like you're not just making art, like you also are managing a community and you're also in discord, a whole other set of skills. So what is that like? Is, is it more than what you thought you were signing up for? And are there any downsides? And when I think of downsides specifically, I'm thinking like, so for Donor Cats, we're so grateful for the community and there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen and we're admittedly trying to balance, like we want the community's voice to be heard. We feel that a very important aspect of this new world is the community feeling and knowing that the next iteration or future products are different because of their input. Like what comes next is because they had a say in it. So the the choose your own adventure aspect. But what we're battling with is at the same time, it's like you are a professional artist. So what point does the community like I guess step on your toes of creative control Morgan honestly that's a great perspective you know transparently how we are building out Aku is we're building it as a media company and similar to what you're talking about with stoner cats the whole idea behind this is the community input and what is very difficult to do is when you talk about decentralizing IP it becomes very challenging because creativity is very difficult when you got so many people with all these different inputs right the most important thing about this current time we're living in for creators is this an opportunity to build real enterprise value as a creator that never existed before. That happens through engaging with the community, being open, building in the open. And you don't have to necessarily go to the community with every single question about the direction of IP or question about the direction of the company. And I don't think they want that. I think they want to see leadership. They want to know like, these people are experts. This is what they do. When you come to them, it, you know, it's genuine. And also I'm in Discord every day and I'm in the private channels every day because just interacting, because you can get a lot of information by just interacting. You don't need to be like, hey, where should Aku go next? You know, a lot of that stuff's in my head or in a document somewhere, right? And so just being in there interacting, you get to know them like on a personal level and you can start to making decisions, you know, uh, subconsciously based on the people that are part of the community. And one thing that I am super grateful for that you guys didn't have the luxury of is like we grow organically and small. Right. And so over the course of the last couple of months, we have a very tight knit community. Like I think there's only like five out of nearly 600 chapter threes for sale on the market right now. So it's like 1% or less are available. And so that's real people that are invested in this project who I can get real information from. And I think it's very difficult when you scale to like a board apes or you have you know thousands of unique holders to, to have a community identity. We have a community identity. You go into discord, you say something that, you know, that is inappropriate or wrong or offensive. You're going to get told like, that's not correct. You know, the community is very gracious. It's happened and it's incredible the way that they respond, right? I'm very confident now we have an identity. And so now that that foundation has been laid, we can scale. And as we scale, that community ethos stays, you know, the same. And that's something that's very important when you're building out IP is that the community, you know, talk about decentralizing IP. Now the IP that the community has built the identity of what we're building. I think this concept is so powerful. And I think there are a lot of lessons from it that span across industries around just the way that products in businesses and companies are being built. And the traditional logic is, you know, come up with an idea, do some customer development discovery, talk to some customers and then build a product and 
then take that product to the customers and try and sell it to them. That's how a lot of companies who get built across industries. Now, what we're seeing in crypto broadly and NFTs, you know, really as leading the way here is they're building a community first. You know, there might be, you know, a piece of art or one initial NFT, but it's not a company. It's, you know, a symbol that represents some principles and then a community forms around that symbol or around those principles. And then through engagement with the community, you know, further products and concepts, and you could see a whole media company emerge out of that community. And so it's just an entirely different model of development. And as I talk to founders, you know, who are you know building in fintech or building in a number of different areas, one of the first questions I ask is, have you set up a Discord group yet? Do you have anyone in your community? And I don't think that there is really a point that is too early because you're going to learn so much and maybe the product that you wanted to build isn't what your customers wanted. And it's actually a more scalable way to do customer development is to bring you know a few dozen or even a few hundred people that are prospective customers or partners or maybe future employees or co-founders into a Discord group and start to ideate together. You're going to get a lot of insights that you wouldn't get doing these one-on-one interviews with different customers. And who knows where that's going to lead. And I think the difference is it doesn't lead to a traditional company. It leads to these you know community-built products. And I think those can scale and have greater network effects than you know, many traditional companies that have a handful of founders. Well, unlike traditional user research, you have a community of owners who are as value aligned as one can be. So to the broader point of working with this community to build enterprise value, I know, Michael, you keep using the phrase enterprise value. So I think people who are listening might be like, what does that mean in this context? I'd love to hear you expand on. Yeah. I mean, so what you see is like I talked about, you know, the tools that exist now in Web3. You talk about creator tokens, you have, and you have NFTs, right? Two things that can align community and consumers with creators and brands, right? Let's say the creator price or the the secondary market price for uh, NFT is a direct metric that can show the value that you are driving as a creator or as a brand back into the audience, right? And so there's a scoreboard, right, that like can keep the brand or the creators in check. And so why I believe that, you know, as a creator, you can build this enterprise value is because the most important thing is a, you know, a thousand true fans, right? As soon as you have a thousand true fans and now they're invested, they're not just like liking something, they're buying it and then telling their friends to go buy it and their friends are going are telling their friends to go buy it, right? So you have this exponentially growing network of invested evangelists and marketers and capital providers to the IP or to the creation or to the brand that they love. Like that's never existed before. Usually like, you know, like my daughter loves Frozen. Like, so I go to the store and I'm going to buy her, you know, a Frozen lunchbox, right? But like, that's where it ends. But now you have an audience, they can buy an Aku NFT and then we have a t-shirt, they can get a t-shirt, they can tell their friend to go get the t-shirt. And now because they have value there on the secondary market or through a creator token to go evangelize it right? That's real value. Like that's, it's extremely, extremely valuable if you're building a community for anything, but in particular, you know, as you know, with Stoner Cats, building, you know, IP and getting that out, you know, out and distributed to about to remain, you know, as independent as you can from the distributors that want to own the IP, 
right? We have an ability now to build a large enough audience where we not only are the producers of IP, but we are also the, the distributors of the IP. And that allows us to drive value back into the audience. I think with the internet, it feels like before this, you know, crypto, that people were getting shorter and shorter attention spans. And there was just such short-term memory. Like it was like one of my partners calls fruit flies. Like you're always on to the next thing. But infestation of fruit flies downstairs right now. Oh, oh don't bring those up. I'll call you after this. And <laughs> I have it down. But NFTs, tokens, like these incentive models are a way to create the fruit fly trap in a way. I have to think of a better way to phrase it, but the whole, like, you know, actions speak louder than words. There's something around like, you know, NFTs speak louder than likes. I think what you're getting at is the way to interact with brands you like, creators you like on the internet pre this was like literally just pushing one button once. Buying something. Now it's like you have to invest. It's more of a commitment. I think there's this concept of creative ownership where, you know, normally people are just passive consumers of content, you know, or of products and they might like the content or not like the content, but they have no creative ownership in that content. They didn't do anything to make a decision that impacted that content at all. You know, once you get to the point where even if the decision is small, you know, even if it's, you know, what's the name of the next character going to be, even if it's some very minor detail, if you have a community that feels like they have a voice and they can actually vote or they can decide on what that's going to be, I think that changes the entire relationship that that consumer has with the ultimate media. Because now they can say, even if it's small, I had creative ownership that this media and this content resulted in this way because of a decision that I made. And I think when you give people that, it's an empowering feeling. And I think everyone's had that experience of they've watched a show that they've liked and the show hasn't gotten renewed or they hated the ending. And it's kind of this, it's a terrible feeling. You're like, why did they do that? Like I was a big fan until they did that. And so if you can start to give the opportunity for consumers to impact and influence the way that content is developed, I think you're going to see a lot more loyalty and excitement and evangelism around that than when they're purely just passive consumers of it. There's so many different ways to distribute content now and for a lot of people to consume content. Play to earn gaming is a way that you could distribute content and distribute story and narrative, right? But it allows people to build that narrative and story while, you know, partaking in the value that you're driving to the game or to the platform, right? Like that's a real thing. It's not like I can speak on like from like the media perspective. It's not like TV film is like the only way we have to distribute content. NFTs, play to earn gaming. There's endless ways that you can collaborate on, on story that builds a larger narrative that just kind of piggybacks on itself. I'm incredibly bullish on play to earn gaming and models like that, that allow people to have a stake in the thing that they're participating in on a daily basis, because I think that action will bring out a lot of people's desire to make it better and provide their input versus just, you know, logging in and playing. And I think one of the key metrics that's changing is it's not just about eyeballs anymore, where, you know, for creators and content in most Web2 environments, it's how many eyeballs can you get? How many followers do you have? You know, how many views do you have? Because it's purely in a world where the only way you monetize is through advertising. And so it's just how do you get more eyeballs here? You know, in Web3, the real metrics are commerce. How many people purchase an NFT? How many people you know, purchase a social token that gives you a membership you know, into a community? And then how many of them participate in that community and take some action in that community? And I think that that's a much more scalable and more interesting business. And sure, creators have been 
participating in commerce, you know, since the beginning of e-commerce, the challenge has always been how do you, you know, solve the supply chain? You know, how do you, you got to have a relationship with a factory, you got to produce t-shirts, you got to have a fulfillment center, you got to have shipping. And there are amazingly talented designers and creative people who could build a brand and build an audience and create a design. But where they struggle is how do you have, how do you buy these? Do you have the capital to buy these shirts in bulk? And then do you have the fulfillment? Like there are really challenging logistics problems that prevent creators from being able to monetize with physical products. And it limits your reach where you can't sell a $5 product if it costs $10 to ship it to someone across the world. And so now that the supply chain for creators is getting digitized and you can mint an NFT instead of having a factory produce a physical item, I think that enables participation in commerce and the ability to build global commerce businesses at a massive scale where the only real barrier is creativity and ideas. It's not even you know engineering to some extent as the tools get easier and easier where you can mint NFTs in no-code platforms. And that's what's so exciting to me is, you know, if any individual can build a commerce business and sell to consumers across the world, you know, we think that that's just a, an enormous you know, opportunity to grow economies and to help you know, people you know, earn livings from their creativity. 100%. 100%. Well, we're all saying 100%. When we describe this world, it seems so obvious, but I'm conscious that people who are listening, this might be their first time hearing Web3 or hearing people preach Web three. So I'm curious if you have any tangible examples of something that was Web two and is now replaced by Web three, or what do you see as like the core properties of Web three? I'm putting it in quotes. You can't see me. Or what do most people not get about it? Or what do most people get wrong? Well, I think let's take you know what you guys did with Stonercast is a perfect example of this. In Web two, the only way to get that film, I mean, that series funded was through financiers. Or, you know, licensing or selling the IP to hopefully get it greenlit, right? And distributed. You guys basically rallied the community together, gave them value back for being capital providers, right? And audiences line with the creators. And the better, you know, you guys are capitalized, you can go distribute it directly to them. The show say super dope. Everybody's coming in. Now everybody needs a spot in to watch it, right? That is how you've kind of disrupted the web to, you know, media, you know, financing and distribution. Another example is you look at Bored Apes. Bored Apes have funded themselves to be a massive brand and have the resources and the capital to go really do whatever they want and not need to, again, license or do get into a deal where they're getting, you know, splits on their revenue or, or anything like that. They're in control of what they want to do. And then what you see is these brands legacy brands are going to need to come in and tap into that board ape audience, right? Or the stoner cast audience or enter any other visceral community. These brands need a way in now. And so now they got to come through the community that's, uh, that they built or, you know, already versus having to go to them and say, Hey, this is a board ape. And, and would you want to put this on a t-shirt? You know, now they're in the driver's seat. Kai and I talk about this sometimes is with this decentralized communities, these big brands should be putting proposals together and saying, like, can we work with you guys in the community? Should be voting on like, yeah, like, let's rock with them or no, we don't like that proposal. You know what I mean? The community ultimately will decide what legacy brands are going to be, in, be able to enter this new world. And that's super, super dope. I think one other piece that I'm excited about is you know, there are a ton of great examples that Micah highlighted in media, but this is also expanding into other industries. Education being one. And Morgan, you and I were just talking about this the other day. There is a 
study group that is called Crypto Culture in Society. And it is a study group. Here's a curriculum. And here's a group of people that are excited to explore and learn about these concepts together. And there are a number of different virtual you know, education platforms. They didn't go through any of those platforms. They wrote a blog post explaining what they wanted to do on a crypto native platform called Mir. And they did a crowdfund you know, in that blog post for people to contribute to participate in the study group and get an NFT for participating in the study group. And now if you're in the study group, then you can you know, access a private you know, Discord channel. You can be able to engage with people who will be lecturing and teaching as well as you know, other students. And so it's a whole cohort-based course that really started as just a blog post. And so I think we're going to see more and more examples of you know, how these new community-based models are going to be used across you know, a number of different industries and, and sectors. I do think, Morgan, it is our, as we are early here, and we, you know everybody here on this call and else is early and real thought leaders, it is very important for us to you know, hold on to these core values that we're talking about because you know, as these legacy brands and as people and uh, institutions start getting kind of, you know, we're the gatekeepers now. There's going to be some times for us to make sure that, you know, we have accessibility to have governance over our future uh, financially and to be able to support and share in the upside of the things that we believe in and the creators we believe in. And that's incredibly valuable because now I got people buying, you know, Aku NFTs that, you know, couldn't invest in some of the deals that, you know, other people get to exposure to, right? But now they have a chance to buy something that's meaningful to them that can occur value over time as the IP grows and expands. And that's really powerful. I think that's something that definitely didn't exist in Web2. Like, if people were able to invest in a Mickey Mouse when in 19, whenever 30, right, they would be, you know, doing well. And I think that we're shifting this and we're democratizing access to, you know, have agency over our future financially. Absolutely. And it's more broadly this concept of giving the people what they want, letting people tell you what they want. Like I think in the Web2 world, there were these trusted middlemen who decided like, okay, I'm a studio and I think people want to see a show about cats, or I you know, did some study group where I gave people $10 in McDonald's to tell me if they wanted to see a show about cats. But now it's like we're asking people directly, do you want to see a show about cats? And instead of like filling out a questionnaire, it's like you are buying a cat to tell us that you want to see a show about cats. So and with the study group that you mentioned, Kai, like it's like, OK, instead of a university coming up with a syllabus and saying, hey, we think you want to learn about X, Y, and Z. It's like, what do you want to learn about? Fund it and we'll teach you it. So it's just this broader concept, I think, of letting people tell you what they want and giving people exactly what they want. And for a creator's perspective, there's not as much guessing involved because people are quite transparent. And one of my former co-workers and friends, Balaji Srinivasan, he has this phrase he's been saying recently about how crypto creators are the new internet influencers. Or not new, but you know this concept of crypto creators versus internet influencers, where you're an internet influencer, you're on one of these platforms, you might have millions of followers and billions of cumulative likes, but you know who cares? Now you're a crypto creator, you get to go directly to your fans. You get to build wealth and community directly. You get to kind of own your destiny there. And when you say that out loud, you just realize it's just an exponentially more powerful relationship or more meaningful relationship. Yeah, more authentic. More authentic. And I think community building is going to be one of the most important, if not the most important skill set for future founders you know, across industries of can you build a community? It's a lot of work. It's not easy to do, but I think we're seeing a ton of experiments 
around, you know, best practices, what works, what doesn't, and everyone's learning as they go, but there's not an option to say, you know what, we're going to skip the community building part. We're just going to build a product and be successful. <laughs> you need a community, you know, and you need it as early as possible for whatever product that you're going to build in crypto in the future. Like we are looking at two companies. They're both similar in many ways. Like they each have two people. They're very early. They're playing around the NFT space. They're both technical teams. So it's as close to an apples to apples comparison as you can get. And one of them has an active Twitter and Discord and has a product out there. That's not great, but it's out there. And they're in the Discord every day and you can see and they're like getting feedback. And the other one is waiting to launch until it's a bit more perfect. I'm like, okay, one of these is how you do it in crypto. One of these is how you not, how you don't do it. But like the DAX, like all the words are very similar, but you just, that was one of the points I brought up. I'm like, these people are talking to the customers before anything else. And it just seems like that you can't really do it any other way anymore. Especially the younger generations, they want authenticity and can smell bullshit from a mile away. If you're not authentic or open and vulnerable and exposed to make mistakes in the open, you're not going to make it. You got to be in the trenches and it's not easy. There was like a two week span where if you were famous, you could drop something and you could right off into the sunset. That's over. You got to be in the trenches with the people that are invested in you on a daily basis. And if they don't want to see some moderator, they need to see the person that is building it. They need to show that, you know, we're in here, I'm grinding with you. You know, that's what I've seen with Aku. There was like a period where like, I was like heads down and I wasn't in there for like two weeks and you can, it was reflected in the secondary market prices, right? And there was some kind of like disdain and, and the discord is quiet. I was like, no, nah, we got to go. And so I've been making it a point to go in there and we talk about fantasy football. We talk about whatever, you know, good morning, good morning, good morning. How you doing? Get your coffee. You know, what's going on, you know? And it's night and day different, night and day different. Like even in the bad times, I've had some mistakes and some things happen on some drops and people, you know, didn't get access to it. You got to wear it, man. You got to be in there first thing. You do have to be in there. You do have to wear it. The flip side to this is, I keep bringing up Sonarcats, but that's the one example I'm the most intimately familiar with. And we had some names that people would have recognized pre-crypto involved with the project. But to your point, I think by the time we even thought about starting anything, we knew you have to do this in an authentic, real way. Because to your point, everyone and their brother and sister in Hollywood is launching something. So you have to be really in it. And even those people whose names you didn't recognize, but the people associated with the project, like we need to all be in it every day and we're in Discord all the time. But the irony is like, you know, this is the new world, the internet, crypto network effects, but like that part really doesn't seem scalable at all. <laughs> and I don't have an answer and I don't, know if you have an answer, but like that doesn't seem scalable. Like we all need to be able to live our lives. You need to be able to be with your daughter. So I don't know if you have an answer for that or thoughts on that or Kai, if you've been in, you're in more of these discords and DAOs than I am. Like it's a 24 seven job to be a creator and an entrepreneur. And it's hard to keep up with all the discords. Like, and it's, I would say impossible. Like, if you want any time with your family or eat or go to the bathroom or whatever, like you, I don't know. I don't get it. So I think Mike and I were talking about this the other day and like, it's so early in the space and like the number of people who are collecting NFTs or participating, like it's so small. And so I think every project is experimenting with how to build communities. And I'm really interested to see where escape velocity happens and the community can live on its own without you know, the founder, the creator having to drive all the value to the community. And I think that's at the beginning, someone has to drive, you know, the value, someone has to be committed to it you know, every day. And I think if you just have a bunch of people that are hanging out and there isn't a leader and there's no one who's you know, starting to drive value, it can be tough to get started. But I agree that it's not sustainable if 
you know, years from now, the only reason the community is valuable is because of the next thing that one individual is doing. So I think there has to be some point where it's not even just the size of the community and the number of people, it's the size and the talent of the core contributors. And that could be six people. That could be 12 people. And if there are six to 12 people who are adding significant value, then it's less about you know the original founder and, and the creator. And so I think you know, Board Ape and CryptoPunks, you know, those are kind of two examples of I think the projects were so successful that it wasn't, you know, and it was more historic and people were collecting these as assets. So it wasn't dependent upon, you know, the founders of the projects every day. But over time, you know, It'll be interesting to see what that trade-off is and where the escape velocity happens. Morgan, how I thought about it was I just said I want to scale out the team that of executors. And so my role isn't executing on, and having to execute on this part or this division or this vertical. I just put people in place that execute on that. My role as a founder is to, you know, have the overarching vision, but also be in the Discord. Like, good morning doesn't take that long. GM, you know, responding to like someone talking about the Carolina Panthers doesn't take long, right? What goes a long way is like the simple stuff. Somebody, hey, can I get verified into the private channel? Sure. Tagging, Mike is tagging so-and-so, and you know, so we can get that done. I see it as more like as a Web3 founder, the important part is to scale the team of executors. And the founder is, is the front-facing, you know, hype man. We gassed up. NFL Sunday, we were fired up. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like when I close my eyes and picture hype man, it's it's definitely you. And you can't see Mike, he's wearing all white everything. All white. <laughs> it's great. It feels like this Goldilocks where when you close your eyes and you picture the end state, it's kind of kind of what you were talking like it's you know, Dow is distributed. But trying to think about it, like it, the community is running itself, everyone is kind of helping out. It's a bit utopian, but like that's kind of the vision that we all have. Like you close your eyes one day and like the Aku community is going to be doing its thing. But between here and there, it is this Goldilocks optimization problem between, okay, like how much do you let the community just run with it versus how much are you heavy handed? And it is more of an art than a science today, it feels like. Even things such as like putting people on payroll are things that are like poo-pooed within some of these communities. Cause it's like, oh, you're bribing someone to be a spokesperson for your community or be full-time. Like even that is looked down upon some way. So I, that's where I feel like it's walking on eggshells. Like what's like the right amount of like steering the ship and making sure that the train is running on time and that things are going according to plan. Cause like in a traditional web two world, like the founder has opinions and jurisdiction over like design principles and the tone and how like what language is used and all these things versus not letting it be too heavy handed. That was a lot of words, but I would argue that the principles are the most important thing that the founder has to set the principles and good principles attract good people. And if you have good principles and good people, it leads to good products. And I think good principles can scale, but if the principles are not in place, it's really hard for a community to have that North Star in that direction that they're going. So we've been talking for a while, but there's one topic that I wanted to ask your opinion on because you both are working on something that's a huge opportunity and challenge in crypto right now in different ways, which is accessibility, which is the people that you're trying to target are new to crypto. And by that, I mean like Aku, the Aku audience and the Aku vision and mission and story appeals to more people than our crypto people today. And Kai with Visa, which we didn't even get into Visa, you're going to have to come back. Like you're also trying to bring crypto to the masses. And I used to think it was maybe going to be wallets or stable coins or something that was going to be like the great onboarder of non-crypto people into crypto. But 
I'm more and more thinking it's going to be NFTs that's going to bring the most unique users to crypto over the next like 12 months, five years. So the one word punchline is quote accessibility, but more specifically, I'm just curious, like what learning lessons have there been there? Like, for example, with stoner cats, like we learned a lot about gas fees and messaging about gas fees and educating people on gas fees. And that was a painful lesson. And uh, what building blocks are missing to make this crypto more accessible to people that are new to it? Quick, just thoughts of that. I think what we're seeing is that culture is becoming one of the biggest on-ramps into crypto. And, you know, crypto wallets are starting to look a lot more like super apps where it's not just a financial utility. It's where you're holding your favorite art and your songs and your memberships you know, into different groups. And I think that it's appealing to a range of people who aren't interested in trading or interest rates, but they're interested in art and music and culture. And so I think it's exciting that you know NFTs are making the space more accessible and approachable for people who, you know, could still use a crypto wallet, but weren't going to sign up for a crypto wallet just for crypto. I think there's a huge opportunity to continue to improve the infrastructure. And so I think as applications are built, you know, how can you have good fiat on-ramps and off-ramps? How can you have wallets that are secure, but are you know easy to use? And I think we'll keep seeing innovations around applications and communities that then create the demand for new infrastructure. And then we'll see new infrastructure that will lead to new applications and communities. And it'll keep going back and forth. But uh, there's a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs to build in this space, whether it's at the application layer or the infrastructure layer. And so if you're building an application, create a community and a Discord and you know start to brainstorm there. If you're building infrastructure, join 20 Discord communities and ask them what their problems are and like what infrastructure they need, you know, to better serve, you know, the overall mission of that community. And I think there are huge opportunities on both. All right, Mike, if you want to answer quickly. Well, I just think that how I'm approaching it is just approaching it through IP. I think everybody understands a great story, an authentic story. You know, Aku is a very authentic and original story to me. And that's something that you don't need to explain to people. It becomes a responsibility on our end, if it doesn't exist, to create the infrastructure that it's easy for people to onboard, which is partially why we went with Nifty Gateway. And I think I would argue that over like probably like 70 to 80% of Aku collectors are you know, first time NFT buyers or, you know, holding in a custodial wallet on Nifty. Our mission and what we are building is trying to be that first touch point for people in a very palatable way. They love the art. I love Aku. I love the mission. I love the message in, in some way, shape or form. And if the infrastructure isn't there, we'll just build it and help people, you know, easily onboard. Well, we can't wait to see what you build to help people easily onboard. Mm-hmm. We stay cooking. Micah and Kai. Thank you so much for coming on today. This was fun. I'm already going to peer pressure you because this has to be the first of a series because it's very clear that it's all first getting started and we're all going to make it. Yeah, we're going to make it. There's going to be many chapters. So a shameless plug, Micah did not ask me to do this, but the way Aku has been dropping or unfolding is there's chapters to the story. So if you've heard him reference chapters earlier, that was in reference to. And he did not ask me to do this, but I am going to put him on the spot one last time. Any Aku milestones or drops that people should set their alarms for or what's next? Uh, yeah, definitely the chapters are coming up, but you know, Art Basel is coming back in December. So, you know, Aku World is coming to Art Basel in uh, Miami in a big way. And that's so, you know, get your tickets to Miami, get your sunscreen and get your mask. And we're going to be down there having a good time and introducing more people to Aku and the message and the story behind Aku at Art Basel. Hell yeah. Well, we will see you in Miami. We will talk to you before then. Congrats on everything. Morgan, it's always a pleasure. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing things others do not. 
Send this episode to any founder friends that may need these insights and frameworks and rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast. Thank you.